Welcome to the Fairfax Church Podcast. We're a community in Fairfax, Virginia, following Jesus. We upload new messages every week, and to learn more about us, visit us at fairfax.cc. Enjoy the message. Good morning, Fairfax. It's good to be with you. My name is Jessica Eitvlucht, and I am uh, typically with our teenagers in the hangar, but every once in a while I get to be in here with you, and it's always an honor. Um, Would it be okay if we had a moment of levity before we continue uh, talking about human suffering? Is that okay if we just, we lighten it for just a moment? Uh, I'm curious if any of you were here yesterday for Trunk or Treat few of you? Okay. All right. Let me give you another chance. Uh, If you were here for Trunk or Treat, could you maybe just show your appreciation to the Trunks and to the Fairfax Kids team that uh, pulled off that event? It was great. We brought the girls and a neighbor family. And um, I just have to say, this was our, I think, fourth year coming to Trunk or Treat. And I feel like the trunks upped their game a little bit. So uh, if you were a trunk, well done. Uh, it, it was really great to see last night. We had a lot of fun. Um, and then um, how about the Fairfax Coffee Shop? Yeah? Have you guys been over there? Did you see it on your way in? Um, it looks amazing. It is absolutely beautiful. I'm so excited about it. And I just wanted to take a chance to, um, to, to just, can you show your appreciation to Ronnie and to Sam, our facilities director. They have just worked tirelessly to get that open for you and for the community. And we're super excited. If you happen to see Ronnie today or Sam, I hope that you'll just tell them good job and thank you and, um, and show your appreciation to them. So, um, so yeah, it's been, there's a lot going on around here and uh, we're excited about all of it as always. Um, last week, Rod started a new series called The Wisdom of Job where we are taking a look at the book of Job and, uh, and it's right in the middle of our Bibles, right before the book of Psalms. And uh, Job is a story about a guy who has everything. He has a lot of wealth and uh, he, is, he fears the Lord and, and worships God. And, uh, and he has a large family with many children and a lot of influence in the area where he lives. And, uh, and so he has everything. And then in sort of one fell swoop, it all gets taken away. He, uh, he loses his uh, he loses a lot. He loses his wealth. He loses his family. Um, and then his own health begins to fail. And in the midst of uh, this book, Job asks a lot of questions. He asks why. He asks why me? Why now? Uh, why do good things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? Um, he asks, why am I suffering? He asks, uh, he's, it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem just. Where is God in the midst of all of this? And these are natural questions to ask. The problem is if we approach the book of Job looking for answers to those kinds of questions, we're going to walk away very disappointed because the book of Job is not really focused on answering the question of why. Why do people suffer or why do good people suffer or why, does, why do I have to suffer or why do I, why I love have to suffer or how can I avoid suffering or even how can the people that I love avoid suffering? The book of Job is actually focused on another question and that question is how do I suffer well? How do I go through what I'm going to go through in a way that recognizes God's presence and activity in the midst of my suffering? 
And Job is part of what's called the wisdom literature. Psalms and Proverbs and a few other books are a part of this genre in the Bible. And uh, Job specifically is about helping the people of God live wisely in a world where they often experience profound pain. And so at its core, Job is a poem. We see that in the structure of it as we read through it. And poems are written to communicate truth at a level that goes beyond the cognitive and really just touches the heart. And so people argue, uh, and you maybe have asked this question, if, if Job is a historical figure or a metaphorical figure, if the events in Job took place historically or not. And I understand those questions. I have asked those questions. And so I don't mean to say that those questions uh, are meaningless, but that we argue about whether Job is literal or metaphorical. And uh, much like the rest of the wisdom literature, like any poetry that communicates truth, the reality is that that answer to that question doesn't really matter. Because the book of Job is a poem that invites us to find wisdom in the midst of our own painful and confusing circumstances. Rather than providing simplistic answers, the book of Job enters into our pain, into our anger, into our doubts, into our questions about God. It invites us to trust the God who we claim to believe in, who we claim to serve and live our lives for. One of the things that I think is so beautiful about the book of Job is that uh, the poetry goes on at length to say the same thing over and over and over again. And if you find yourself in the position of being in a season of suffering, then I think that the book of Job can give us language to process the things that we're feeling. It can give us language to pray back to God as we're trying to deal with the emotions that are coming up inside of us. Now, Job consists of three main dialogues, and there's a dialogue that takes place between God and Satan, and Rod spent some time on uh, that dialogue last week. If you missed his sermon, I want to really encourage you to go back and listen to it. It was an important message last week. If you have never considered a theology of suffering, then what Rod gave us last week was really a theology of suffering. And, uh, and if you missed it, he talked about how, how in the book of Job, we learned that God does not cause the suffering. God is not the causation agent of the suffering. But that God is always at work in our suffering and that God is present in our suffering and that we can trust God in our suffering. And so today, we're gonna take a look at just a small piece of what then is the really long dialogue between Job and his three friends. And I'm putting friends in air quotes on purpose. Um, we'll decide. Kathleen may have changed my mind about whether they were good friends or not. I'm not sure. The jury's out on whether or not these are actual friends, but we'll get to that in a minute. So in chapter two, uh, we're just gonna dive in here. In chapter two, we read this. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And if you don't think I practiced those before I got up here, you're kidding yourself. Uh, they met together to go and console and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now, the implication is that Job is a leader in his community, that he's got all of this wealth and this big family and he has a lot of influence. And these three friends are from other communities. We kind of get that from seeing that they are from these three different areas. And so, uh, and so they travel probably a, a considerable distance to meet together in one spot and then to come the rest of the way to Job 
together. And when they get there, they see Job, and it says they don't recognize him. And, uh, and that doesn't mean so much that they don't know it's him, so much as when they see the way that Job's grief and suffering has transformed him, has impacted him, that they're like startled to realize that it's their friend, that it's this person that they know. And so the next two verses describe them joining Job in his mourning. And, um, and it talks about how they, uh, they sit with him for seven days and nights, how they tear their robes, how they put dust in their hair. And um, at first glance, I, I read that and thought, oh, that's great that they're joining into the mourning. Like that's such an appropriate thing for friends to do. And then I read that maybe I'm giving them too much credit because that would have been like just the proper etiquette, right? It's like, it's like sending flowers to the funeral. It's just like, if you know them, that's just like the proper, proper etiquette thing to do. They didn't do anything like above and beyond necessarily in this moment. And, um, and so they, whether they were uh, just joining in and following the proper etiquette at the time, whether they actually felt like a, a genuine sense of horror and sadness for his loss, we don't really know. There does seem to be like a stunned speechlessness that falls over them, that they just sit in silence, which you can imagine in the face of that kind of suffering in anyone's life that none of us would know what to say either right? And so it's just quiet. And it's only broken by Job himself, who finally gives voice to the lament in his soul. In chapter 3, verse 1, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And this is literally what the next 26 verses are, is Job lamenting the day he was born with heartbreaking detail in verse after verse. And in studying this passage, one thing that really struck me was that commentators talked about how Job isn't really talking to the friends in this moment. He's really just sort of processing out loud all the things that he's feeling and thinking about. Uh, and it's sort of to God, and it's sort of just to whoever happens to be listening, um, but it's extremely passionate. And, uh, and it's, it's a lot to take in as you read it. And while it's not hard for us in a modern context to read that and to appreciate why he would be feeling all those things, why he would curse the day he was born, why he would wish himself to have never been born or to be dead. It's not hard for us uh, to understand why he feels that way and to even find his honesty and his passion refreshing. It would have been startling. It would have been worrying. It would have been borderline inappropriate to his friends who were gathered there. And so we have the first friend who ventures in with the response. And you can almost feel the tension in the room as I imagine Eliphaz taking a deep breath and beginning with what one commentator described as a polite tone. If one ventures a word with you, will you be offended? And then I think where this all goes downhill is with what he says next. But who can keep from speaking? You, Eliphaz. You probably should not speak should probably just stop. Um, let's read a little bit about what Eliphaz says, but fair warning, it doesn't really get any better from here. Uh, verse three, see, you have instructed many. You have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have supported those who were stumbling and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Think now, who that was innocent ever perished or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. In other words, listen, Job, you like to talk a big talk when it's other people who are suffering about what they should do. 
You like to talk about being strong in the face of adversity, but now what? You have one really bad day and you're impatient with God? You find yourself dismayed? Besides, Eliphaz says, you reap what you sow. So, as he's going to go on to say, uh, you must have done something to deserve this. His advice in chapter five, I'm sure, seems simple and straightforward to him. Verses eight, starting in verse eight, as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. And then in verse 17, how happy is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Now, obviously, I skipped a lot there, but his basic argument is, you must have sinned. You must have done something. So you need to confess it. Whatever it is that you did wrong, you need to confess that to God. And then you need to be happy about this discipline that you're experiencing from God. You need to be happy about it because it's gonna make you better in the long run. And perhaps the best line of the whole thing in verse 27, see, we have searched this out. And it is true. Hear and know it for yourself. He's saying like, the three of us, we've talked about it. And we're pretty sure that we know what's going on here. And if you would just think about what we say, I think you'll see that we're right, and then you can move on. Now, I'll be honest, I can't really think of a worse thing that you could say to someone in this moment. More or less, Eliphaz's train of thought is that all of this suffering is Job's fault, that it's victim blaming, that it's shaming, that it's gaslighting, and, uh, and that... Uh, that it's all of these things. And listen, I don't, I don't know that if that was Eliphaz's intention. I, I don't want to ascribe malicious intent to him. I have no idea. Perhaps it was the best wisdom he could think of in the moment. He'd been sitting there for seven days and nights not saying anything. He'd had a lot of thoughts in his head. Maybe this is the best he could come up with. I don't know. But it's chapter after chapter. In Job's moment of deepest sorrow and grief, his friends make it worse. And it's not just Eliphaz, the other two friends, it's a different angle, but all on the same general idea that he must have done something. And over and over again, Job insists on his innocence and rejects the argument that this is his own fault. So for sure, these friends are miserable comforters in the moment. And if we're trying to figure out how to come alongside someone in their sadness, then there are no examples to follow here. But I didn't wanna leave you with that. And so, uh, out of a list of what not to do, I wanted today to be really helpful for you all. Uh, Like, great, we hear that Job's friends failed at this, but how do we do better? And so I immediately knew that I needed the kind, gentle guidance of uh, of an internationally known expert at CARE, our very own CARE pastor, Kathleen Achi, to come and help me this morning. Um, And listen, as she comes up and as they bring some stools out, you might wanna get your phones out, you might wanna open your notes app, Because my hope today is that you have actionable stuff that you can take with you the next time you have a friend who's hurting, Um, maybe something that's going on in your life right now, things for you to think about, maybe even some homework for you as we learn how to do this better together. Uh, So will you join me in welcoming uh, one of the best humans on earth, Kathleen Achi. Thank you. All right, so... Kathleen, hello. Thank you for doing this. You bet. Um, So uh, first, we have these examples in Job of what not to do. And the first one of these is about this idea that like maybe telling your friend that they've done something wrong to deserve this is not our best move. Got it. Um, What else would you add to the list of like, don't do this when you're talking to somebody who's suffering? Sure. So I think um, taking what they've said and making it very simplistic, 
judging what they're doing, judging what's happened, um, all of those things. Um, not listening to what they're saying, but interjecting what we want to say and make sure we get our points in there. Mm. Um, and I think, too, just the, the sense of not respecting their own beliefs, whether or not they're believers, but um, everyone has a point of view, a way they look at this, a heritage that they came from, different, just different ways of looking at things, that this is not the time to confront those things. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, we talk a little bit more about the faith piece of this, because as a person of faith, I, when I'm going through something, I lean so heavily on my faith that it's hard for me to think about, if you don't have that, what it is that you lean on. Uh, and I want to be truth, truthful. I want to be honest in the way that I'm expressing you know, my own uh, condolences and my own sympathy and empathy for someone who's going through something. So is there ever a time to bring up faith? Is there an appropriate way to bring up faith? Should I not even like offer to pray for somebody? Give us some guidance on that. Yeah, so I think it's really important first to take this to prayer yourself. You know, this is your friend. This is someone who you love and cherish. This is someone who um, you have a relationship with. You know a lot about them. So you kind of understand, you can discern how best to manage this situation. So as far as um, for a, a non-believer, um, I think it's appropriate to ask them if you can pray for them. Um, or, or you are going to pray for them. I often find, I've, all these years, I've never been refused to pray for someone or to allow them to know they're praying for me, and that hasn't comforted them in some way because that saying of there's no atheists in foxholes, mm. you know, when we're suffering, we really just want to grab onto anything, something. So even if it's not a, the same belief system, there's something in us that's lacking, especially during that time that we just feel like we're drawn, like there's a hole, there's something missing, yeah. and maybe that gets filled with this God piece. They may not understand that necessarily, and you don't need to explain it to them at that <laughs> moment, but just being able to say, I'm praying for you, or can I pray for you? Um, <clears throat> and you'll know, you know kind of what to do. There's other times maybe down the road that you'll be prompted to talk to them about faith or, you know, that sort of thing. But at that initial moment, that's probably not the right time. Yeah. 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 Um, I've been told before that, like, the worst thing you can do is say nothing and do nothing uh, when a friend is in pain. That is, when something happens that just going silent on them is, like, the worst thing. But uh, Job's friends don't say anything right. So... Uh, I'm wondering if they even, even maybe cause more harm than good. Like, do, do they get any credit for showing up in the first place? Like, do we give them any credit or, uh, or do they cause so much harm that they really should have just stayed at home? How would you advise us on that? Yeah, so I personally think, I don't know if everyone would agree, but I personally think that showing up is great. The fact that they showed up and stayed there for seven days, even though that was a cultural thing, but the fact that they did that is pretty amazing. I don't think there's many of us that would show up for a friend and sit there seven days in silence. And so I think they did a great job there. It was what happened next mm -hmm. that kind of creates the problem, right? Yeah. And so, um, so I think that that's where the place is that we need to be a little bit more considerate about what's said next. So again, it goes back to the non-judging, you know, the listening, all of those things. 
And um, so I, I, think they, I think they do get credit. I think they yeah. do get credit for that. Yeah. All right. Um, so let me give you a hypothetical situation that's not actually hypothetical. Uh, so um, it's what I'm currently watching. It's the context through which I've been thinking about all of this. So um, my best friends, a married couple, uh, the mom of the husband just died um, not long ago. The funeral was yesterday. And so um, I didn't hear about it from him. His wife texted me uh, to let me know that she had passed. And it was, kind of, it was kind of abrupt. It was about six weeks from diagnosis to her passing. And, um, and so it was, it was sudden. And, uh, and so I'm curious, the wife, I, I didn't find out from him is what is my setup is what I'm trying to say. So now I need to reach out to him, right? Like, I know about this thing. I need to say something to him as we just talked about. Do you have any like back pocket texts or lines or anything like that that you could give us that are like your go-tos for what you say? Like, like I get, I'm so sorry for your loss, but then what? <laughs> sure. So um, again, you are the one that knows your friend. You know um, what would speak to them, what would be hurtful to them if they didn't have a great relationship. You know, so there's, there's different things like that. You don't want to say things like they're better off. Like we kind of gravitate towards those things so easily because they're so well-known and cultured that like almost as, um, yeah, almost as sarcastic. I don't know. It just, it doesn't fit, you know, yeah. to say those things. But we still go ahead and say them and then we go, oh, I shouldn't have said that. But I think things like after, you know, I'm so sorry for your loss, tell me a little bit about, you know, the person like this mom. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about your mom. Tell me how, um, what you'll miss most about her. Um, you know, and that will create most likely, not intentionally on your part, but that will create an emotional moment for them, most likely, that someone has asked them something so deep that may be right at the surface level for them of what they're thinking. And so if they start to get emotional and start to cry, that's okay. You haven't done anything wrong. In fact, they will probably come back to you at some point and say, you know, that was so helpful. Even though I couldn't speak or even if I couldn't tell you or whatever, you said the right things there. So I think there, you know, there's those kind of kindnesses, um, gentle things that we can say to people, um, and, and short things, not, not big, long, you know, um, paragraphs full of, of words for them, but just these small things, a question, that sort of thing. And I think those are the things that are most helpful. Yeah. To stay on that general idea, but uh, if it's something that we're being told in person with another person, so like there's the, so like this instance was like a text, so I had a chance to think about it ahead of time about what I wanted to say. But what if, I, um, what if I'm being told somebody like a diagnosis or something like that, and they're telling me in person, like what's, what, do, what should my immediate thing be while I'm thinking about the next thing? <laughs> Sometimes just saying, I'm so sorry to hear this. And often just being comforted by a hug, by um, just, you know, just drawing them in, uh, touching them on the shoulder if it's not necessarily appropriate to draw them in, but just touching them on the shoulder, just I'm here, you know, that sort of a thing. Um, I think those things are very, very helpful to do. Yeah. Just the, the, the physical touch with someone who is in um, grief or loss of any kind is really, really helpful um, and really speaks volumes. There's, you know, very little that we can say. But you can gather yourself in that moment after you say, I'm so sorry, 
and you've gathered them up. And, you know, um, sometimes we're given words to say, and sometimes we don't know what to say, and it's okay. Better not to say anything than to say something that would be really um, Mm. more hurtful. So measured words. Yeah. So continuing on with this kind of hypothetical, a lot of suffering doesn't have, like, an end point, right? Uh, going back to like the example of a death of a loved one, that's not, there's not like a, an amount of time where that person is grieving. Um, or maybe somebody's confided in you that they're trying to conceive and it's not going well. And, uh, and maybe like, okay, so do you ask about it? How long after? You don't want them to think you forgot or that you aren't thinking about it or you don't care. And so it feels like you need to follow up, but how long until you follow up again? How often? What do you say? Can you help us with that? Yeah, so people that are grieving often find that people avoid them and won't talk mm. about the subject and won't ask any more about the loved one. They're thinking about their loved one constantly, constantly. And no one asks, you know, um, how are you doing? What are you missing? You know, those sorts of things. And um, so I think it's, it's good to do that. It doesn't have to be every single time that you see someone. Again, that takes prayer and discernment over when is the best time to do that. When someone's, uh, you know, it's, it's another situation. If you've been told certain information, let's say in the case of you mentioned fertility. So someone says to you, we're about to do some next steps. They're starting in a couple of weeks. Um, it's really important to, like, mark that. Somebody told you something really important. I'm having surgery, you know, at this particular time. It's really important to mark that because they told you that. And it's important to, you know, kind of follow up with them in some ways. And it doesn't have to be, so how are you doing? It can be, I'm thinking of you right now and I'm checking in on you. That's a way to, they can just kind of send back an emoji they can just say thank you, or they can give you three paragraphs in a text mm-hmm. of how they are doing. So if you just kind of leave something open-ended, <clears throat> they can choose to respond or not. But know that they hear you. They're, they're very, um, it just really warms their heart that you have remembered that they're going through something. So it's really important to do that. When we, when, and, and sometimes we forget, you know, so that you can jump in anytime and, yeah. and, and do something, but just to kind of remember the things that people have told you. Yeah, that's good. Um, let's talk about that old gym. Please let me know if you need anything at all, right? Uh, probably most of us have been guilty of saying it. Even like in our heads, we might even have been thinking, don't say, let me know, don't say, let me know, and then we say it anyway. Um, so, and most of the time, like we mean it, you know, we really do want to help. If there's, if there's something we can do, we really do want to step in and help out. Is it ever the right thing to say? Can you give us some ideas on like, instead of tasking them with letting us know, like some ideas of ways we could offer to help that are, that would actually be helpful. Um, yeah. Anything along those lines. So I don't think it's a terrible thing to say, you know, often that's like the don't say that. I don't think it's terrible. I think it's, I think you're, if this is your friend, like, you, you mean this, but then you want to follow up in a day or two. Hey, I said what I meant, so how can I help you? If you can't think of something, here's some options that I might, you know, do. So you know this person, so maybe picking their kids up from school would be a good thing. Maybe um, dropping off a meal would be good, but, you know, you, you want to drop off something that you know that is 
maybe child-friendly, or if they have a gluten allergy, you're not bringing over a pan of lasagna. You know, so it's those kinds of things that you have to be kind of thinking through, thinking about, like, what might be the best thing. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that um, that's, I find so easy if you're bringing a meal, uh, and, and it's hard, you know, because we're we're not, it's not easy, we're not staying home cooking. If you're one of the folks that cook, God bless you, and thank you for, you know, bringing that to your friend, but a, a simple meal of a rotisserie chicken, a loaf of bread, and, um, and a bag of salad, like, speaks volumes when you arrive at that, you know, with that at the door. Mm -hmm. It sounds like, so, like, simplistic, but that is really easy to do. Yeah. Um, another thing is called grief groceries. So if you're grieving any losses, one of the things to do is you, you're not going to necessarily bring a meal, but maybe a bag full of like really kind of nice, fun snacks from Trader Joe's, like cheese and nuts and crackers and, you know, um, like who doesn't want that, you know? So, so when you're just there, you can kind of grab something that's semi-healthy and bring it. That's great for people, you know, not just grief, but just if they're not feeling well, if they've lost their job, if, you know, any of the things um, that we can think about why someone might be suffering. And with a note, and you just leave it on the front porch or, you know, or drop it off and ring the doorbell and just say hi. So, Again, you know your friends. You know what they need. But the, the point is that maybe they need their toilets cleaned because a whole bunch of families coming into town because of what's happened. Maybe something else needs to be done. You're their friend. You know that. You know what you'd want. So maybe that's what they'd want. And you know them. So it's really important to figure out those things and and just start doing one thing or another and, you know, kind of keeping it up. I think the other thing is, is, you know, this grief and such goes on for a long time. Yeah. Like, it, it, so for some, it never ends. So it's not just like, you know, the casseroles are gone, the visits are gone, the family's gone. You know, who's going to step in and just check in on them and make sure that everything's okay? Yeah, yeah. Anything else that we didn't talk about that you want to make sure and mention? Yeah, I think the one other thing is, you know, I've done this wrong. I haven't done it always right. I'm sure that you are thinking yeah. right now about the times when you haven't done it right. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. That's okay. We're, this is a learning that we're trying to constantly get better at doing these things. So, so that's, that's good. But the other thing to think about, too, is that if you've ever been hurt by someone who didn't do it correctly when you've had a loss, to remember that we need to give people a lot of grace because this is not comfortable. This is not easy. This is not, you know, it's, it's just, it's, there's not a manual that like we get, you know, like, oh, this happened, now do yeah. this. Uh, because there is no manual. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing you can really read or anything. It depends on the person. So just if you feel like you've been in a place where, someone hasn't done exactly what you had hoped they would do, just forgive them for that and, and just re remember that when it's your turn to do the right thing that you step up to the plate. Yeah, that's so helpful. Yeah. Thank you so much. Will you guys show your appreciation to Kathleen? Uh, I hope that was helpful to you. I hope... I hope there were some things there, some nuggets that you can take away. 
uh, as we try to do this better together. I want to wrap up today by telling you a little bit about the Benedictines. Uh, the Benedictine, Benedictine monasteries in particular, there are Benedictine monasteries in various places uh, all over our country. The Benedictine monasteries live by the rule of St. Benedict. And if you are living in a Benedictine monastery, then you go to church four times a day, every single day. That's what their liturgy is. And, uh, and so obviously it looks a little bit different than like this, if you are going every day, four times a day, but still it's a lot. It's a lot to go to church four times a day. And every time they have a worship service, they pray, uh, they sing the Psalms. And so uh, they do this at every single gathering. And so four times a day, seven days a week, 150 Psalms, that means you sing through the entire book around once a week. And if you spent much time in the Psalms, then you know that the Psalms, part of what is so incredible about them is that uh, they make up the entirety of human emotion in their lines. Um, that you, they, they express in their poetry every single emotion that we have, that there's great joy in the Psalms, that there's rejoicing, that there's deep lament, there's anger, there's doubt, there's fear, there's hurt, there's loneliness, there's laughter, there's praise. However it is that you are feeling on any given day, you can find a Psalm that speaks to you. In her book, The Cloister Walk, Kathleen Norris uh, spends a lot of time with the Benedictines singing the Psalms. And when you spend a lot of time with them over time, you memorize all of them. And so uh, it is the songs that you're singing when you, you know, the song that's stuck in your head for a Benedictine, that's often a Psalm. And so she talks about a whole chapter that she has in her book dedicated to the power of the Psalms on the human heart and soul. But for our purposes today, there's one thing she says uh, that I want to share about you, share with you. She talks about how in every monastic choir, and they're usually made up of about 300 people, there is someone who needs to lament the cry of their soul, and there is someone who is ready to shout with joy. And often the person who is there and is ready to lament does not really want to sing a psalm of joy. And the person who is there with joy in their heart is not really in the mood to sing a lament. But it doesn't really matter. When you go to church four times a day, you sing whatever psalm is on the schedule for that service, regardless of the emotion that they're feeling. And so uh, what if you are just too exhausted by despair to sing or pray? What if you are too overcome with joy to sing the lament? What if you don't feel the psalm that day? She writes this. Herein lies the gift of communal worship. In the really hard times, says one sister, when it's all I can do to keep breathing, it's really important for me to go to choir. I feel as if the others are keeping my faith for me, pulling me along. The other thing I want you to know about these choirs is that in a choir of 300 people, when you're singing the psalms, they hold the notes out for a really long time. Um, and apparently this, this happens, I know this happens in other songs too, but they hold the note for so long, and especially when you're new uh, to this practice, then um, you can't carry the note for as long as they want you to carry the note. And so uh, a voice will drop out to take a breath. But you don't notice in a choir of 300 when a voice drops out because everybody else continues to sing for you. In this room, right now, there are men and women who, for, like Job, it's all they can do to keep breathing. They're in a season of hurt, a season of lament. There are people in our lives who are grieving and scared and lonely who are not here today, but who we've all been thinking about all morning. Much like I've been thinking about my own friends who buried their mom yesterday. 
And I want you to continue to hold those people in your hearts for the next few moments. And if someone doesn't come immediately to mind for you, uh, so that's okay. We have, as we know, plenty of suffering around the world to spare. And so if for you, if it's not a specific face or person that you know, then maybe the nameless face of a person on the other side of the world or a grieving mom in Maine or a dad somewhere, hold them for just a moment. Because we're gonna sing a song today that we've sung many times before. The first verse reminds us that the perfect son of God, Jesus, knows what living is, that he's acquainted with our grief, that we have a God who weeps, a God who bleeds, a God who knows suffering because God became human and suffered here. So our God is not distant or removed, but instead our God reaches for us and chases us down and embraces us in our brokenness. And maybe you can sing that song with your whole heart today. Maybe you have lived the truth of these words, then proclaim it and sing it for those who can't sing for themselves today. Sing it for your friend in anticipation of God's faithfulness in their lives. Sing it for your daughter or your son. Sing it for your coworker or your neighbor and hold them in your heart as you sing these words of God's love and goodness over them. Sing it as your prayer for them as your proclamation of who you know God is and who you know God can be for them. And if you're here today in a season of suffering yourself, hear me say that God sees you, that God has not forgotten you. And if you can't sing today, then let the monks sing for you. Let us, your brothers and sisters, sing this song on your behalf, not knowing you or your story, but only that you are one of us, our brother and sister in the body of faith. And let these words minister to your soul as we lift you up. Let us sing for you and believe it for you and proclaim it for you until you can believe it and proclaim it again for yourself. So church, stand with me and sing. Declare God's goodness for yourselves and for our friends together this morning. First, I'm going to pray these words from Psalm 69. God who sees. We pray this over our hurting friends today, those gathered in this room and those scattered. Save us, O God. For the waters have come up to our necks. We sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. We have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over us. We are weary with crying. Our throats are parched. Our eyes grow dim with waiting for our God. Answer us, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to us. Do not hide your face from your servant, for we are in distress. Make haste to answer us. Draw near to us. Redeem us. Set us free. We will praise the name of God with a song. We will magnify the Lord with thanksgiving. We pray for those we love. We hold the hurting up to you. We trust you. We believe in your faithfulness and we declare your goodness. We love you, Jesus. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Fairfax Church podcast. You can find more messages like this on our YouTube channel at Fairfax Church or follow us here. If you were blessed by the message and resources provided, feel free to leave us a review.